Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and Mr. Taylor, whose writings in the industry you can regularly read over on The Wrap, and whose musings on the Mission Impossible movies you can listen to on Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, he and I are recording this week's show on Sunday, January 7th. And the Golden Globes are tonight, right? They are tonight for those that care. Um, I am not in that camp, so <laughs> all right. I will well, be, yeah. Well, well, look, all right. I, I think as far as back as Pia Zadora and Butterfly, there's always been a question about the Golden Globes. What was it? Starting in the 90s and sort of leading into the 2000s, they became sort of the pregame show for the Oscars, kind of, sort of, right? Sort of, Jim, but it, they are also so wildly off base. I mean, part of this is the uh, long standing history with corruption and um, being bought by studios and stars. But, you know, they gave Madonna the Oscar for Evita, Jim. I mean, this is this is not exactly the bellwether test. <laughs> Some think that it is for the Oscars. Yeah. Well, you know, the interesting thing, everybody was willing to turn a blind eye to this sort of stuff till what, uh, 2021 when uh, that report came out that the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, the voting body for the Golden Globes, didn't have a single black member uh, and it, things kind of collapsed after that, right? The studios and, and stars boycotted uh, the 2022 and then I want to say in 2023, uh, NBC broke off its 30-year relationship with the Globes. And so this time around, CBS is broadcasting them and uh, they're being streamed internationally by Paramount+. Plus. You know, that said, it is worth noting that there are still those who sort of look to the Globes as sort of a hint as to where the award season is going to go. And so uh, in that spirit, uh, it's worth noting that the best motion picture animated, uh, the nominees for the Globes tonight are Hayao Miyazaki's A Boy and, His, and the Heron, Pixar's Elemental, Sony Picture Animation's Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, Toho's Suzumi, Illuminations, uh, Super Mario Brothers movie, and finally Walt Disney Animation Studios Wish. Um, but toward what Drew was just saying, is this this is a new category for this year, right? The Cinematic and Box Office Achievement Award. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, who who brought in the biggest pile of coin? I guess and. Uh, worth noting here that there are two animated features included in the pile here. Uh, again, uh, Sony Pictures Animation, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, and the Super Mario Brothers movie, again from Illuminations, along with Barbie, Oppenheimer, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, John Wick 4, and a, a film you might know a little bit about, Drew, uh, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, but also the Taylor Swift concert film, the the, the eras too. So again, going to be interesting to see the reaction there. Uh, rounding things out, uh, original score, two animated features uh, were recognized for their uh, motion picture work. Again, The Boy and the Heron and Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. And then, I gotta love this one, uh, best original song motion picture from the Super Mario Brothers movie, Peaches. And did uh, is the deal that Jack Black 
just ad libbed that, right? Um, oh, is that? I don't know what is that the story. I I'm not that well versed in peaches, Jim. So you'll have to tell me. Okay, no, that that that's what I'd heard. So anyway, uh, how might all of this potentially impact this year's Oscars? Well, it is worth noting that voting for this year's uh, Academy Award nominations begins later this week, uh, Thursday, January 11th, and then closes next week on Tuesday, January 16th. And and then uh, we get our official Oscar nominations announced uh, one week after that on Tuesday, January 23rd. And uh, this year, worth noting that the 96th Academy Awards are going to be held on March 10th, and in between that, the Annies uh, are going to be held at UCLA's Royce Hall on February 17th. And uh, to be honest, that's really more of the bellwether, right? About, you know, which way things might go for current animation. Well, the Annies. I mean, the Annies has not been without its controversy, Jim, as we know about how Jeffrey Katzenberg made all of the members of DreamWorks Animation sign up to be able to yeah. vote to somewhat sway the vote. I think that things have kind of leveled out over there, but I was only- about to say, yeah, yeah. That, that that was a while ago. And Jeffrey at this point is what off busy raising money for Biden, right? He's raising money for Biden, but he's also interestingly kind of trying to sway smaller uh, elections all across the country, which is really interesting. But he, yeah, he is pretty much a full-time kind of political operative these days. I've always wanted to go to the Annie's, even though I hear it's like 9,000 hours long and very <laughs> tedious. But I, I would like to sit there and, and hang out and shoot the breeze with people. Let's see if we can make that happen. This yeah. Year. But, but I, uh, just a quick note, that's really interesting that that's how Katzenberg is choosing to spend his twilight years. Because remember, he started out as the boy wonder or... With uh, John Lindsay, didn't he? Yes. I mean, yeah. yeah. Wow. That's interesting that he returned to that. Yeah. All right. Anyway, kind of a light news week, folks. As always, I uh, want to let you the, know about who's sponsoring the news portion of today's fine tuning. And this time around, it's being brought to you by Touring and Cruises, formerly known as Touring Plans Travel. Uh, that may be a different name, but it's the same team and this dedicated group of Travel Advisors is ready to transform your dreams and unforgettable memories. So please check them out at touringandcruises.com. All right. On previous show, Drew has talked about how much he enjoyed Leo, Adam Sandler's new animated feature. Uh, that, of course, came from the folks at Animal Logic, uh, that Australian animation and visual effects studio, which Netflix acquired like two years ago, right? Yeah, they did the uh, Magician's Elephant or whatever that was. There we go. Was, there right? we go. Yeah, yeah. and then mm-hmm. Leo. They are now, after after this acquisition, uh, formally being integrated into Netflix global animation studio structure. And as a result of the streamlining of operations, Sharon Taylor, formerly the CEO of Animal Logic, has resigned, and Karen Tolliver who's the VP and leader of Netflix animated film division. Uh, She's going to take over day-to-day operations at Animal Logic. And next up from these talented folks is Ron Howard's animated feature directorial debut, The Shrinking of Treehorn, I want to say, which is based on a book by Florence Perry Hyde. Whatever you say, Jim. That sounds like a Mad Lib that you concocted, (laughs) but... 
I'm I, sure it's I, true. I, I, you know, look, I'm actually excited to see what Ron Howard could do as an animated feature. You know, I, I, I've enjoyed a lot of that guy's work. Now, did you get to see the uh, the trailer that dropped back on Thanksgiving for Justice League Crisis on Infinite Earth uh, Part 1? I did. I thought it looked really cool. Yeah, same thing here. Uh, this is the first installment of a new animated trilogy uh, coming from, uh, what is it, the, the, the DC... Uh, films at, at Warner Brothers, uh, which, by the way, is based on Marv Wolfman and George Lopez's uh, famous DC comic series from 85 and 86. It actually debuts digitally today, the, the day that this podcast goes live, January 9th. Then two weeks from today, on Tuesday, January 23rd, the 4K Ultra High Def version will become available as a limited edition steelbook as well as the standard Blu-ray. And while we're talking up superhero-related stuff, uh, worth noting that now all nine episodes of season two of Marvel's What If, they did that nine-day-long programming event over on Disney+, Plus uh, with the last episode dropping uh, December 30th. So those are all available to view, and it's worth noting that... Uh, in the uh, mid-credits in, in episode nine of season two, we get a tease for season three of Marvel What If. Uh, we see the Winter Soldier and the Red Guardian looking to elude Nick Fury in a car chase. By the way, not exactly a surprise that we were going to get a season three of Marvel's What If. Uh, that actually got announced back in July of 2022 at San Diego Comic-Con. And while we're noting the, you know, a return of Marvel related stuff, season two of Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur is going to debut beginning of next month, uh, Friday, February 2nd. What's kind of interesting is these episodes will initially premiere on Disney Channel and Disney XD and become available for streaming the next day on Disney+. Plus. And finally, let's just take a look at the box office for this past weekend. January 5th through the 7th, and Migration uh, came in fourth at the domestic box office behind uh, Wonka, Night Swim, and Aquaman, and The Lost Kingdom. This uh, Illumination film sold uh, $10.25 million in domestic tickets, and that brings its box office in North America up to $77 million, uh, $72 million overseas, with a worldwide box office so far of one hundred and fifty. Now, Disney's Wish, on the other hand, uh, just $62 million domestic. And <laughs> by the way, a number of folks at Illuminations reached out to point that out to me. You know, just like, eh, you know, we're doing better than that. On the other hand, overseas, uh, Disney's latest has done $119 million. Uh, so worldwide box office of $181 million, which, as Drew pointed out last week, when it costs $200 million to make your movie, that's not a great place to be. On the other hand, I don't know we, if we brought this up last week. Illuminations migration supposedly only cost seventy-two million to make, so that has a better chance of of recovering its production costs at this point. Anyway, when we get back, uh, Drew and I are going to take a look at a time when Disney used to make a lot of money off of its older animation titles. But first, this. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we're back. Um, Drew, as we were pre-gaming tonight, you wanted to talk a little bit about a kerfuffle that happened in regard to some animation news last week, particularly B-O-O-O, right? Yes, the Bureau of Otherworldly... What was the? Mm-hmm. What does the acronym stand for, Jim? Bureau of Otherworldly I, Operations or something? I believe so. And, all right, correct me if I'm wrong. This was a film that DreamWorks Animation had in the works. In fact, wasn't Melissa McCarthy uh, supposed to be one of the voices in this thing? Or Yeah, well, it went through a few iterations. Remember when it was Boo You? It was actually a... Okay, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was sort of set at a college. Mm-hmm. It is a super classified agency you've never heard of and certainly have never seen. Dedicated to protecting humans from evil hauntings, the agents of Boo have a secret weapon. They are ghosts themselves. So it starred uh, Seth Rogen as a new ghost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he's partnered with Melissa McCarthy. The rest of the cast included Bill Murray, Matt Bomer, Octavia Spencer, Jennifer Coolidge. And where we're getting into trouble here is Rashida Jones. Now, what <laughs> happened was there was a Variety article about the most anticipated performances of 2024, which is super weird uh, to begin mm-hmm. with. But then okay. in the write-up for Rashida Jones, they talked about how Boo was supposed to come out this year. And people went absolutely insane because they had been, you know, I don't know when this thing, when was this in development, Jim? Like, you know, oh, forever. I want to say, wasn't this one of the films that got killed when DreamWorks was sold to Universal? I yes. mean, there were a number of projects that, you know, just for house cleaning, I mean, wasn't Monkeys of Mumbai in that same pile? And, and Yes, and which is shadow? interesting because I've been hearing that there's another Bollywood-type movie in development right now. Hmm. Okay. That is not M- Monkeys of Mumbai, so I don't want anyone to get that twisted. Okay, but. okay. Yeah, it looks like it was supposed to be released in 2015, but in October 2014, they pulled it from the release schedule. So, yeah, DreamWorks, I mean... Uh, this is dead. I, I have to say that unequivocally. And this thing popped up in Variety, and, and people went absolutely insane thinking that it was back. And it was actually just poor reporting. Um, the guy that wrote it is not the best reporter, and um, that showed. Uh, very nice guy, but he was using, I think, outdated information. And it was uh, it was a bad situation. So I wanted to just clear that up, Jim, that it is not happening. Mm-hmm. Somebody said, well, it's 60% animated, which it is, it's not 60% animated. Mm-hmm. And if they wanted to finish it, they would have to redo the entire movie because every two movies mm-hmm. at DreamWorks, the entire pipeline of production changes. And, and it's weird. I've heard the exact same thing at Pixar. I mean, you know, it's the whole notion of, you know, you can't just reuse the rigs when you're doing a new film with with Buzz or Woody, because it's like, no, you know, the, the rigs have changed, uh, you know, and, uh, but that said, you can understand why 
people might have sparked to this rumor. I mean, think about what just happened in the past year with Nimona. Yeah. You know, a, you know, a, a film that supposedly died at Blue Sky found a new home over at Netflix. And I mean, I don't get me wrong. I'd love if this could actually happen because uh, it, it sounds like a fun premise. But at the same time, it just, you know, sometimes the ship sails, you know, that just the way it is. Um, anyway, oh, oh, you ha- also had another story uh, that you wanted to share some info about the uh, the Shout Factory acquisition of, of certain Henson titles, right? Yes, they, they announced a big deal with Henson and they announced that Labyrinth and the Dark Crystal were part of this deal, but also that things like the Storyteller were going to get re-released, which I'm just so excited about. And, you know, it made me think, Jim, about the original deal for the Henson properties from 1990, 1989, you're gonna break my heart again. Yeah, like, yeah. When I mean, all just, all of that was included. Everything, right? Every everything. everything. Yeah. yeah. If Jim Henson had gone to the hospital just a couple of days earlier, you know what we might have got out, gotten out of that guy. More to the point, the fact that all of this stuff would have been under the Disney umbrella and you know released through home video and, and that sort of thing. Just the fact that the pieces of now are just sort of scattered to the four winds. By the way, was there any information there in regard to whether or not the Dark Crystal uh, limited series, uh, that was done for Netflix, right? It was Netflix. Yeah, I think Netflix still controls that, but I think it's going to be good. I think we're going to get new versions of it on home video as well as digital. Um, I just talked to the CEO of Shout on Friday um, oh, a little oh, bit about this, okay. but... Um, and hopefully a new cleaned up version of Storyteller, which I don't think has ever really properly been released on any kind of high definition format. I'd love to revisit that material because if you remember how visually stunning that was, you know, when it first came through the door, weren't there like eight Greek fables, that sort of thing? Yeah, I believe that is also part of this deal. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that they should have the rights to is the, um, you know, the non-storyteller ver- half hours of the Jim Henson hour. So, like, dog mm-hmm. police or whatever. What was it? Dog? Yeah. And, yeah, like, they, Song, they, of the, they... Song of the Cloud Forest and yeah. Monster Maker yeah. and those kind of things should all... I mean, I don't know if it, they're going to put them out, but I think that that is part of this deal. You Sometimes you'll see those pop up on streaming. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. What was the weird yeah. one about the oh. lighthouse... The guy that goes to this like mysterious, I think Jerry Jewell wrote it. Do you remember this? And there's sort of mermaids and things. Lighthouse Island. There we go. I mean, it's just the heartbreak with, with that one in particular. I mean, when Jim went to NBC and sold them on the idea of, of it's time to do another, you know, Walt Disney, you know, wonderful world of color like anthology. Uh, and, you know, and, and he, I mean, he literally stepped into the Walt Disney role. He hosted the show. And I want to say three episodes in, it was dead. You know, it just, it, at that point, it's like, you didn't do the numbers, we're killing the show. It was kind of an odd format because it wasn't it as was, long as... Was. No, having no. Having the two halves was very odd, I thought. Um, but I loved the show <sighs> and I love the Muppet stuff. I think that's the one part of the Muppet puzzle 
that if you think about all the shows that follow the original Muppet show, you know, that was done in, in syndication. It, you know, it was one of these things they didn't have to worry about some guy out in L.A. or some guy in New York looking at what the ratings were. They just had to please each individual market that was buying the show and deciding, you know, is it going to air on Tuesday nights at 7.30 or Friday nights at, you know, at 10 or whatever. You know, to be completely honest, if you look at The Muppet Show, the, the show is finding its way in season one. It doesn't really hit its stride till season two. And and that was the thing. Everything that Henson did sort of had to find its way uh, till you, know, yeah. you had characters like Gonzo suddenly, you know, rise up out of, you know, uh, out of the cast. Or for that matter, Piggy, who was just sort of a glorified extra who, you know, became, you know, virtually the co-star of the show. But, all right. Anyway, uh, that is great news that, that Shout Factory is going to make you know, Labyrinth and, and Dark Crystal and all of these other weird little Henson projects available in home video. And, and speaking of home video, uh, Disney's Wish, which was released to theaters back on November 22nd, uh, I have been asking around in regard to when this Chris Buck and Fawn Vera Sun Thorn film is going to become available on home video. And what I'm hearing is... The Blu-ray is going to become available either on Tuesday, February 20th or uh, Tuesday, February 27th. And uh, as we mentioned as the lead in for this episode, once upon a time, these sorts of things, these releases on, uh, well, back in the day, VHS and beta were a huge part of the revenue stream associated with the new animated feature. Uh, no longer. Uh, I, I don't want to say Disney plus basically ruin that. But why would you want to own a physical copy of a film that you could stream? Now, mind you, and, and we have, Drew and I bring this up on the show all the time with Guillermo de Toro's comment last year that physical media is almost a Fahrenheit 451 level of responsibility these days that, uh, you know, you got to own the physical copies of this media. But once upon a time, the only way that you could see a Disney animated film was when it was re-released to theaters. Now, mind you, Disney stood outside of the, uh, the home video phenomena for a while and, and eyeballed it. Cause again, the whole notion of the way Disney made money was the vault, you know, that you, you, you release the film and then you put it back in the vault for seven years and you only brought it out when there was a brand new generation of children who could then get excited about this movie and beg and plead to their parents to buy the toys and the books and the LP and all that. And these were typically over the holiday as well, right? Yep. Well, now where this gets interesting is Disney decides uh, in March of 1980, I mean, mind you, they'd launched their home video division in 78, but it was, you know, <laughs> it was this weird hodgepodge of stuff that they put out. But, they finally decided, okay, let's test to see if there's really appetite out there for, uh, you know, Disney titles on uh, home video. And so March 8th of 1980, they chose four specific cities to roll this stuff out into. It was Chicago, Houston, Philadelphia, and San Francisco. And there were only 13 titles initially that they made available. And those were the Apple Dumpling Gang, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, The Black Hole, Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, 
uh, then escape to Witch Mountain, hot lead and cold feet, a, a favorite of Drew's, you can just tell. Uh, <laughs> what is it? Uh, the Love Bug, the North End Irregulars, Peace Dragon, and 20,000 Leagues Under the Seas. And now, obviously... No animated features on that list, but there were a couple of compilations of uh, animated shorts. There was a thing called On Vacation with Mickey Mouse and Friends, Kids Are Kids with Donald Duck, and then Adventures with Chippendale. Now, mind you, these things, Drew, were going for over $100 a copy. And why that was, was that this was... In the heyday of the video store? Yes, I remember it. I worked in a video store for 10 years, Jim. I saw it at its peak, and I saw it as it was starting to fall off. And I remember tapes would be like $79 just for the rental stores, because then you would you would be able to rent them out, you know, and, and conceivably earn that back. But then the sell-through concept was different, and only apply... I remember... Like E.T. came out like, mm-hmm. I don't know, three years after it was in theaters or something. Right. And mm-hmm. and that was a sell through. Yeah. You could find that at Target. But most of the time it was. Yeah, you could only rent. Well, and, and that was the thing. The notion was that that price you know, was set with the notion of most copies will be purchased by video rental stores. But the the customers that really, really, really wanted and have deep pockets and uh, in most cases, would go to a video store and buy that title. That's where they'd go. So uh, anyway, Tess was deemed successful. Walt Disney Home Entertainment now makes uh, goes nationwide. And to get people excited about this new offering, uh, on December 30th, 1980, they make Mary Poppins, the biggest live-action hit of all, available, uh, again, with the notion mostly for the rental market. Now, which were the first feature-length animated films made available through uh, Disney Home Video? First one was Dumbo. Got released again toward the rental market in June of 1981. And then just a few months later, uh, Alice in Wonderland uh, came out in October of 81. But again, you know, with this artificial uh, $100, you know, plus price point. And where this gets interesting is that We jump ahead a couple of years, and what's really ironic about this story is it was Eisner, right, at Paramount, with Paramount Home Entertainment, that they began to play with price points for titles. I want to say, didn't they have, like, Star Trek The Wrath of Khan that they cut the price in half for to see what would happen, you know, whether or not Star Trek fans would go for that? And now, mind you... This is prior to Eisner arriving at Disney, right? Yeah. I mean, Paramount did some interesting things on home video, too, especially. I think that the the Star Trek thing kind of opened the gates. Do you remember? This was after Eisner had left, but there would they would sell them in McDonald's. They would sell the tapes for like $3.99 or something yeah. in McDonald's. I mean, they, yeah. did, they were really creative yeah. in terms of how to get some of these things out. But yeah, mm-hmm. as far as I know, Eisner's experience with Star Trek led him to say when he got to Disney, we got to put these out for everybody, right? That's it. Exactly. Okay. So, um, so Robin Hood from, from 1973 becomes the first new ish, uh, Disney title, uh, animated title. And they, they do a full national ad campaign, but again, it's still got its 
$79 price. Now, mind you, that's the thing. Disney thought, ooh, we're making a big concession here. We're going to go from over $100 to just $79.95 for an animated feature. And, uh, you know, but again, Eisner comes through the door uh, with Frank Wells in late September or October of 84. And Eisner wants to know right off the bat, you know, how, uh, you know, Robin Hood did. You know, he did, you know, he wants those numbers on his desk. And, uh, you know, and Eisner looks at it and it's like, well, you know, Robin Hood, you know, is one of our lesser titles, you know, but, but what might happen if we put uh, one of our, you know, our biggest films, you know, one of the most famous Disney titles out there made that available for, for uh, you know, home purchase. And so July of 1985, Pinocchio is released on, on home video, but it's still that, that seventy nine ninety five price point. And again, largely because most titles uh, are still being sold to video rental stores. And Eisner is disappointed that a famous, beloved Disney title like that, it only manages to sell 100,000 copies in North America. But at the same time, Eisner gets a uh, report on his desk that says that in the United States at that time, and you're going to love this, Drew, there were 25 million VCRs in the country at that point. And that was significantly up from the number of VCRs that had been owned in American homes in 83 and 84. And so I was just looking at this and again, keeps in mind what had happened with Star Trek, the wrath of Khan. And it's one of these things where it's like, you know, I bet if we cut the price on Pinocchio, We'll move a lot more copies. So November 6th, 1985, and, and this is what? Four months, five months after it had first gone, gone on sale, Disney announces that the price of Pinocchio has just dropped to $29.95. And before uh, Christmas morning of that year, an additional 300,000 copies of Pinocchio had been sold. And at that point, Eisner never looked back. You know, just sort of like, okay, that's the price point. In fact, when Sleeping Beauty came out in October of the following year, 1986, it started at $29.95. And I, I think that was the first one they moved over a million copies of. And that was for the home market, not the video. Uh, in fact, I, I have to ask her, you, you were there when a lot of this went on. How did, how did the video stores react? when suddenly the Disney titles were so obviously aimed at the home market rather than the rental market. Well, I didn't, I didn't work at a video store until like the early 2000s. So by that time that okay. cadence had been established, but I do remember, mm -hmm. you know, this was also the time when beta and VHS were battling it out. And oh, I wonder oh if God, Disney's commitment yeah. to VHS is what totally killed the Betamax movement. Um, I don't know if you ever had a Betamax. It was a better. It was better we quality. We did. Well, yeah. no, my my dad actually did the research, and it was like it's it's better quality. You can you know tape more on you know for longer on the tapes, and we had a beta there at the house for years. In fact, I you know I have some stuff uh, that I taped on the beta that to this day it kind of kills me because. It's broken, and I don't know where to take our, our our beta machine to get it repaired. But there's there's stuff that I've got taped, whether it's Disney specials or news programs or that sort of thing that I'd love to have for research that I just can't get access to because I don't have something 
that can play it. Uh, in fact, I, I, <laughs> I remember moaning to Becky Klein at the, the Disney archive about this very same issue. She was in the same position. She has all of this Disney stuff that's on beta and, you know, how, how, what do we watch it on? You know, uh, and certainly somebody has got to be out there. Maybe somebody listening to this very program, Jim, can help help you out. Here's hoping. OK, well, all right. Anyway, now now speaking of VHSs and DVDs and Blu-rays, the 4K Blu-ray version of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part One was released back on October 31st of last year. Of course, you would know that if you were listening to Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, which Drew does with his equally talented co-host, Charles Hood. Um, and what are you and Charles up to uh, on Light the Fuse these days? I think we're doing some revisiting episodes right now. So classic episodes from the, the Light the Fuse catalog, which have been redone. And um, yeah, will be available for all of you. I think we're doing like Brad Bird and uh, Brian De Palma and a whole bunch of the heavy hitters. So if you, for some reason, missed out on these episodes, you have another shot at them every Tuesday. Cool. Okay. Well, I, and speaking of podcasts, we have a few here on Jim Hill Media. We'd like you to check out. We, of course, have Disney Dish, which I do with Lentesta. Uh, we also have uh, Looking at Lucasfilm with Brian Gaughan. He and I will be doing a brand new episode of that later this week. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, oh, um, uh, Eric Hersey and I just recorded uh, well, uh, partially recorded. We're, we're getting some element, other elements pulled together, but our brand new Universal podcast, the Epic Universal podcast. Uh, look for that to debut sometime in the next week to 10 days. And let's see. And I'm, I'm working on getting Marvelous Disney back up, folks. Give me a little more time here. Uh, let's see. Oh, speaking of uh, Marvelous Disney, and again, want to thank everybody who contributed to the uh, the GoFundMe for our, our late editor, Aaron Adams. Uh, last time we uh, I looked, Nancy uh, was telling me it's it's up over 14,000, damn near 15,000 at this point, and all of those funds go to uh, Aaron's widow, Sabrina Geiger. So thank you so much for your contributions, folks. The uh, latest episode of Disney Unpacked, the video project that Len and I are doing with Veteran Imagineer Jim Shul uh, just went live, and this episode is about Mickey's Birthday Land, the development and construction of that that new land at the Magic Kingdom uh, in Walt Disney World. Some great stories there. Beyond that, Drew, social media-wise, where are we these days? Uh, same places, you know, Twitter, Instagram, mm -hmm. uh, the inside okay. of a darkened cave wall. Yeah, all of those places, yeah. Drew does some wonderful, you know, drawings of, of antelopes and mastodons while he's at that. You know, yes. and social media wise, same thing here. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram as Jim Hill Media, and over on Facebook is Jim Hill Media. Is Mr. Taylor, on the other hand, if you're looking for him, it's it's Drew tailored like a tailored suit, right? Yes, that's it, Jim. You know it. Okay, cool. Final favor here, folks. If uh, you could head over to Apple Podcasts. And rate and review, well, not just the podcast you're listening to right now, fine-tuning, but also Light the Fuse. Uh, that would be extremely helpful. And I guess that's going to do it for this week. So uh, this time next week, 
Uh, Drew and I will take a look at what happened to the Golden Globes, and we'll see where we're headed animated award season-wise. But uh, till then, thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon.